Today on Leading the Way, I'm joined by Andres Holder, Executive Director of the 20-year-old Boston Children's Chorus, and one of his newest team members, Akiba Abaka, BCC's Director of Good Trouble. <laughs> you heard that right, Good Trouble. Our Leading the Way podcast highlights folks who are disrupting assumptions and business models all toward a 2030 sustainable and resilient future, and this team is definitely doing that. Andres and Akiba talk with me about the social justice, activism, and artistry vision of Boston Children's Chorus. Also, how to define and crucially integrate good trouble into everything they do, what defines their market, and so much more. It was such good fun talking about good trouble, and I'm so grateful you've chosen to join me today. Andres Holder and Akiba Abaka from Boston Children's Chorus. Thank you for joining me for TRG's Leading the Way podcast. I couldn't be more um, excited about this uh, about this conversation. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. We're so happy to be here. Yeah, I, I, I am too. And Leading the Way, as I um, uh, described, is a podcast that's designed to ignite the imagination of our sector and ignite it toward a future that is beyond you know, what we see in the next 12 or 18 months. It's 2030, 2040 even. What, what is mm -hmm. the future of the communities that we serve and the relationship to and the power that creativity enables? Um, so that, um, that conversation that I want to have with you is um, going to be, I know, really robust and, and interesting. And I wonder if we could start Andres, maybe with you, um, to mm -hmm. just give us a little snapshot. Um, BCC, Boston Children's, Boston Children's Chorus, is 20 years old. It's not 50 years old. Uh, and it started with very specific values in mind. Can you help my listener just get seated in uh, this organization and its intention? Of course. Our um, founding story is um, born out of a... a long um, historical context for the city of Boston. Um, Akiba and I just had the privilege of joining a group of folks at uh, WGBH um, and uh, taking a documentary that talks about the busing crisis in Boston. Now, if you didn't live in Boston at the time, chances are you saw some very strong images about what the racial tension really looked like in the city of Boston in the 70s. So, out of that movement, and even before that movement, this gentleman, who is a social worker by the name of Hubie Jones, um, has been organizing families um, in the city and in the suburbs to come together to create um, better opportunities for young people, um, particularly people, people of color who've been, who are being systemically left out of the conversation. So when uh, Boston Children's Chorus comes into the picture in 2003, Hubie Jones, our founder, is really starting the organization after being active in this space for a very long time. Um, and he sees a really powerful opportunity to leverage the power of music to bring people together, to learn from each other, to create um, an understanding about each other's worlds and lives and, and internal um, joys and struggles that you simply don't get the, the exposure, whether it be in your school, in your neighborhood, because of the nature of how the city of Boston is designed. So that is the framing for BCC coming into life. 
Um, I remember when I first encountered the organization and learned about Boston Children's Chorus, I was really confused. I'm like, why are they, what, who, this is, this is just a bunch of seven year olds singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. How is this complex? And lo and behold, I am madly in love with this organization that is doing work to really transform the people that we serve. Um, and, and everyone that surrounds those young people. So it's a, it's a really powerful, um, framing for the organization. So it's, it's just a joy to be able to, uh, carry on the legacy of what Hubie started. And Andres, you're the executive director. That's, um, that's the role you play. I didn't say that at the beginning. You've been there how long? I, it feels like it's been a day, but it's been three years now. <laughs> it was just a blink. <laughs> yeah. uh, and we know each other from other places and, and spaces in arts and mm-hmm. culture. And, um, it, thank you for that introduction. It's a it's a wonderful one. And Akiba, you are new um, to BCC, and your title is wildly, wonderfully provocative. Um, can you describe that and your um, maybe just a, a, a bit of uh, who you are and, and what the intention is with your Good Trouble work at BCC. Good Trouble. Thank you again, Jill, for having us on this afternoon. The position of Good Trouble stood out to me um, because I said, wow, here's an organization who understands what 21st century leadership is all about. How do we design inside of our operational and governing structures a department that deals with the humanistic, social justice, and civil rights practices that helps to advance societies? And I was attracted to the opportunity, and I've been here now for two months and working with Andres and the team and the board and the singers and the parents and the community partners really realizing this clarion call. When we look at organizations, we talk about um, the systems that have created our organizations um, writ large, nonprofit, corporations, governments. They're really based on practices that are from the old ways, and those old ways representing colonialism, racism, misogyny, homophobia, and aspects that really was about shrinking our societies and and advancing um, one specific group of people. Good Trouble looks at principles that were coming out of the civil rights movement, Hence the name, having been the position being named from for a statement made by um, John Lewis, um, where he says, make good trouble. Um, if you see something, say something, we should make trouble, we should make good trouble. And this idea of um, how do you organize within a system the qualities and the controls, just to be very frank, the qualities and the controls around equity, not just, so equity, diversity, and inclusion, but also around humanistic values that is going to uplift all of our civil rights and all 
um, of our of the, all of the justice that's necessary for for all groups of people. So good trouble. I like to say that the role is a composite of EDI, um, equity, diversity, inclusion, and justice work. Additionally, it's also looking at the me- how do how do these measures align in our budget? How do these measures align in our artistic programming? Where is the alignment in um, our our human resources? Um, where is the alignment in um, our communication systems? How are we showing up and how are we representing and how are we being responsible for the people who are following our organization? And that's what Good Trouble is about. Yeah, I'm, I'm super curious, Andres, where the idea, I mean, I know where the idea originated in terms of the ch- word choices. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the intention, was it a board? Was it you? How did this percolate? And was it universally and easily accepted within BCC? Like, yes, let's do this thing. <laughs> it was it was definitely a journey, Jill. It, um, I remember starting at BCC um, in the darker days of the pandemic, which I still don't think we've emerged from. Um, and... Um, having to wrestle with an organization that had been lauded and praised by our peers um, in the field, both locally and nationally, but that was dealing with this kind of awkward growth spurt in our late teens, and then we're about to turn 21, so our limbs are growing, but we're not really sure that we have the right size shoe, and everything is kind of, you know, you're trying to make it all fit. And one of the reasons why I came to Boston Children's Chorus was this not siloed, but integrated mission where we are moving forward the highest caliber musical education possible for our young singers. And at the same time, we're driving an aggressive agenda and getting them steeped in uh, social justice principles, in understanding each other, right? The cultivating empathy and social inquiry part of our mission. Those things are core and baked into the work. So I thought, well, I personally believe that you know, organization X or Y um, has done good work in this space and organization A and B have not. And when I think of those places, what I what it boils down to is, do they have something on their PL that actually says, we are working on this? You might not get as far as you want and as you declared when all of us issued all the statements that the world uh, required us to issue, but if you are, if you're creating incremental progress over time, that felt like there was a commitment and I thought with our budget being a statement of values, it it felt really important that we create space um, and time and a place for that thinking to exist. Um, So in collaboration with a lot of people, I I went to folks and told them, this is not an EDI job. It is not a COO job. It is not a director development job, but it does touch all of those things. And oh, by the way, it's curricular educational frameworks for the young kids, and it's advising the artistic team on what goes on stage, and it's how do we cultivate a community for our parents that's really intentional. It's kind of just, it goes everywhere. So where do I put this thing? And that's how we got to this topic. I remember a friend, Greg Ball, when I described all this, all these things that this job was and wasn't at the same time, or, and when I say wasn't, it's not just this thing that we can all clearly understand. Greg Ball just said, you're, you're trying to get into good trouble. And I said, yes, Greg, I, I am trying. And the name just stuck. I, ever since Greg said that maybe two years ago, I'm like, 
the name of this role is Director of Good Trouble. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so happy to have Akiba here now. Yeah, so, okay, great. And so, Akiba, you come in, and this role touches everything. Andres just, I mean, I, I intuited it, and he just described it. And so because it touches everything, I, I also, whoever, whichever one of you wants to describe it to me, I want our listeners to understand the composition ages of the students um, and the kind of programs that are um, the focus of BCC. So somewhere in there, if I want, I want to, I want to surface that, but Akiba, with all of those places that you could go, where are you starting? Like, where do you start? You know, it's interesting. I think about, I've started by listening. So we started with the listening tour, which I'm still in the process of. Yeah, okay. And I like, I like, the, I like the movement that you utilized a while ago. I think I have to start by being nimble like that. I don't know if you have a dance background, but I really, I really like that. It's a 360 start. Jill, you hit it on the nail. It is a three. I'm, I'm like an owl. My head is, is literally moving around 300, uh, appearing to move around 360, but it's 180. Uh, and, um, and so we, the, the first place, um, you know, even in, even while I was, I think on day one, <laughs> I said to I said to the to the great boss Andres. Um, I always embarrass him. I'll learn how to stop embarrassing him. Um, but I said, "Can I see the budget?" <laughs> the budget wasn't ready yet, and I said, "Can I see the budget? What can I see the last two years?" Because the budget is a moral document for sure. And I really like the way that Andres phrased it earlier when he said there should be something on the PNL of an organization that shows that they are walking in this direction, even if it's in increments. Yeah. And when, when I think about good trouble, as far as starting, I ask the same question, well, where do I start? Well, what is this work? And it really is about, so I started by looking through the lens and saying to myself, this is, this is a quality control for the humanity of this organization. So where is the humanity of this organization? And I started with the staff. I started with the people who work closest with our singers. I started with our coordinator, the person who sends out the emails to the singers and their parents and just started having coffees and conversations with folks who, you know, when we, we talk about, um, earlier and I you'll get I know we'll 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 advance to this in the conversation where you said um really what's our market yeah right yeah um where where is the sales what's our market what's up and it, it really is our singers yeah and many would say it's our audience and the reason why it's our singers it's our singers because of what we are where the skill sets that we're teaching them in the way of um singing and, but it's also our singers in the way of our mission, because who are the people that they will become, not only while they are in BCC, but when they leave BCC, who are we putting out in the world? And we, we can't assess fully the impact of our um, process and our vision until we look at who our singers are four years, five years, 10 years after they've left us. And so going back to where do we start? 
It's first trying to find that humanity in the organization and the pulse. And so, again, I've been talking with staff, um, talking with parents and showing up in rehearsals. And let me tell you, I am very talented. I can do all the things. But God said, you are not going to be a singer, Akiba. (laughs) So I've been going to rehearsals and I've been humming in the back. But I sit with the kids and I and I hum the the songs. I don't sing because I would I don't want to throw them off. Um, but I sit and try to go through the process that they're going through. I read the the sheet music. I do ex- all the facial exercises. I participate as if I am a singer, just the one with the worst voice, um, because I want to know what it is that they are experiencing, um, and trying to find the humanity in every single moment of their experience. So that's where I start. Man, I, I, I love that so much. And I do want to go to who is, um, who is the community that you serve. And I'm not at all surprised to hear you describe um, uh, the singers as the the the, the 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 people that BCC is serving. Talk about those singers. Talk about who they are and what they do in a given year. Um, so Boston Children's Chorus serves young people ages 7 to 18. Um, for most of our history, and that'll be, uh, this is our 21st year, that has been mostly in the after-school time. Um, recently, we have just started in-school programming in the last two years. Um uh, whereby we've uh, been serving about 300, give or take, children in the after-school space. And last year, we served about 1,500 kids in the in-school time, with about a third of those being ongoing engagements that lasted the entire academic year, and the other two-thirds were interventions that could have been a, once, uh, a one-time workshop all the way to a four-, six-, or eight-week um, program that we created along with the administrators of their school. So <clears throat> we're showing up in a lot of different places. Um, Boston Children's Chorus's serve population is majority people of color um, with the um, uh, white contingent of young people being the largest single uh, ethnic or racial group, but the combination of people of color that are present in the choir are the majority when combined. Um, the uh, About, I would say, maybe 40, 45% of those in the chorus um, come from households with a median income below, with a, with a household income below the median for the city of Boston. So we are working with, I wouldn't say people right at the poverty line, even though they are present in the organization, but we are in the lower um, side, the majority um, of folks that, folks that we're serving. Um, and uh, we are heavily, heavily, um, uh, female identifying, and we have a lot of um, gender expansive and non-binary and trans individuals in the chorus, especially in the older years. Um, we're doing a lot of work to recruit um, lower voices. Um, we don't use gendered names when describing voice parts, so um, we do need the balance of the SATB choir. We have treble choirs that are upper voices only. Um, but those are a few of the characteristics. Um, the number of people who are coming from the city of Boston is hovering around 45% as well. Um, that's grown from 35% when I first came into BCC. So really trying to be of the geography of the city, um, looking at the demographics of our public school system, for example, and figuring out how do we mirror that or how do we align ourselves with that population, um, which we're not currently. Um, 
yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really interesting mix of people. And we're trying to create classrooms that are really dynamically diverse because that's really, that's the product, right? The fact that you are engaging with people right. that you can't engage with at your school or in your neighborhood, that's the differentiating factor for this organization. So we have to work really hard and making sure that the diversity is not just an edict, but it is something that you walk in and you're like, whoo, no it. one has to describe it to me. Yeah. I, I got it. Right, right, right. Public performances, how many in a year? So we uh, self-produced three concerts and we are presented twice a year, once by Rockport Music up in Rockport and once by the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. So we're performing in the public in a formal concert setting five times a year. Um, and um, we are hired uh, to bring joy to many different events. Um, we were just at the Hispanic Heritage Breakfast produced by El Mundo um, a, few, a week ago when um, uh, the Royals came to uh, Massachusetts for the Earthshot Prize. We got to sing for them. So yeah. it's, it, it, it really, we show up all over the place um, and try to bring those opportunities for young people to sing for important people in their communities that they admire and for them also to sing in the communities that they call home, right? The, the tree lighting ceremonies in the holiday season, you get to like actually do that in your neighborhood. And it's awesome because all your neighbors get to come watch you do this awesome thing you do. Yeah. Um, so we try to balance those things out. Yeah. And we go abroad too, by the way, but you know, I, yeah, I want to just add to that, that BCC has also sung at the White House. Um, we've sung for the King of Jordan. We've traveled all over the world and it's quite, and, and I want to, this highlight is to elevate the value of social justice. BCC is a very prestigious choir. It's world renowned and nationally known. Um, I think we've sung for probably two U.S. presidents. I think we've been at the White House. We have a Grammy. <laughs> we do. Um, and, you know, and so for such a prestigious choir that has so much visibility that our main, our clarion call is around social justice, we don't have to do that, but we have to do that. And so it's to position the prestige and the visibility to elevate and advance social justice for our singers and for our audiences and for yeah. young people to feel empowered in lifting their voice, not just in song, but lifting their voice for each other. So, and in, 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 the, in their leadership. Um, and so that, that, when we talk about the prestige and the wide visibility and the level of performances that we do, what we're bringing to the table, what people are calling us for. The reason they call us over, there are about eight other choirs in the Metro Boston area, is because they're calling not just great voices, but they want the mission that comes with the voices. Yeah, I, I'm curious, I, I that that resonates, I see, I can imagine all of what you've just described. And I'm curious about the curriculum that if I'm a student, you know, I'm, I'm obviously the curriculum is about vocal instruction and performance, mm -hmm. but there's other things too. And I'm curious about what those are. Um, and, and Akiba, you said something really very high impact, um, which is um, we want to send these people, these young people out into the world changed so that they can change others and their maybe communities or workplaces or wherever they find themselves. And I'm, I'm curious if you have a mechanism or plan to have a mechanism to measure that 
uh, five years after they go or um, so what's what's the what's the curriculum while I'm in and do you have a plan to after they leave to stay in touch and measure any of that? Excellent. That's a really great question. As I said, I've been with the organization for two months. And so a huge component of the um, curriculum that we will create will involve evaluation, research, and design. As a matter of fact, the plan is to actually, oftentimes we, we do the work and then we bring the evaluator in. We actually want to design this work with an evaluator. And so that that work is to come but i'll say what i what i do see and i think that andres can speak to this is a little bit more than me but i'll i'll give you an example of hmm, without going too deep into the educators world because then i'll start naming theorists and educators and that will get a little <laughs> bit boring um but I was sitting through a rehearsal with the um, premier choir, which is the more older older singers, and they have four presidents of that choir. I think there's two presidents and two VPs. Mm-hmm. And it was the first day of rehearsals, and the and the and the the presidents were basically laying down the expectations of the choir, and they had everything written out. They were extremely organized. And one person, one thing that, one brain searing thing that was left with me was when one president say, and I want us to remember how we carry ourselves because the low, the, the younger singers look up to us and we should always carry ourselves in ways that they would want to be because they want to be where we are. And so we are responsible for what they see. And so we should carry ourselves in a way that would make them proud. And, you know, and, and here's like a 16, 17-year-old who is has this level of personal and collective responsibility. And, and so in designing a curriculum, I would actually pull that from, I would literally pull that statement, this notion of personal and collective responsibility. And that would actually be a competency within the curriculum. And how do you measure that? And how does that pan out over several years? Um, I, uh, during the pandemic, I, we were doing something called TRG 30s, Akiva, mm-hmm. weekly um, webcasts trying to give the field as much information and share between um, organizations as best we could at a time when everything was unknown and, and, and different. And one of the things that I advanced to uh, in that, uh, in those talks was Simon Sinek's work from a book he wrote called the infinite game. And in it, it describes um, a need to, Uh, It it describes an orientation that says uh, organizations that take the long game Mm -hmm. and don't think about the short-term battles, but place their work in a much longer um, cycle of life, succeed at different levels. And one of the first steps in doing that is creating a just cause. And I would ask Mm -hmm. organizations that we worked with, do you have a just, what is your just cause? Great question. And it was remarkable to me how difficult that answer was for many. It's not for you. It's not for you. 
and I'm, I'm, Akiba, you, your experiences are in theater and other places. And I'm, I'm just, I'm curious where I don't feel like I have, I know of a, a place where this mission and the, and the art, the creativity is so well joined up mm. for a just cause impact. Have you seen it elsewhere? Do you bring experiences to this from another, from theater or from some other practice area? Oh, oh, most certainly, most certainly. I think one, all art comes from a place of a just cause. Yeah. And when I think about Cynic, Cynic talks about always start with why, right? Yes. So that's where he emerges from. And I think one of the challenges that the arts, one of the paradoxes of the arts is that because it's the arts, and it is expressive that it is um, there for aesthetics, meaning looks. But aesthetics encompasses two things, looks and feels. And the feel component, there is a researcher, I always forget her name, but she had talked about um, if we think of the term aesthetic is in, in the way of an anesthetic, right? An anesthetic is something that takes away our ability to feel. An aesthetic is something that allows us to feel. Well, the feel is the just cause. And we, we, we may think, okay, well, people are singing and dancing. What, what is that about? What, what, what am I feeling? We, um, I, in the theater, I trained with an a, a, a incredible director named Kama Ginkas, and he used to say to us, um, did you feel something? Did it make you feel? If, it, if, you, if you didn't feel something, just take it off the stage. Don't put it on the stage. Did, it, did you feel something? So if we, following this, this thread here, if we start with how we want to make people feel, we have to ask questions as to, well, what are they feeling? Why are they feeling this way? Where are these feelings coming from? And from there, that just cause, is it's embedded in the work. However, moving forward, just from the, the theory, the philosophical response, when I look at um, the work of the, 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 the arts culture that I'm from, um, particularly coming out of Black and indigenous and black and immigrant cultures, there's always a just cause, whether it was to save the lives of young people by exposing them to art so that they would not have, when I was at the Strand Theater, so that they would, instead in that out of school time, instead of um, being invited into activities that could get us in trouble, we were invited into the theater. Right, so the just cause was to have something for us to do between three and nine, three and eight o'clock, which are the most dangerous hours for a young, an inner city child. Okay, the moment after school, or working, um, forming my first company, Up You Mighty Race, which was about telling the stories of African and African American people, those stories that were missing from the stages here in Boston, or going to Art Emerson, that was about elevating the stories of people from all, representing the diversity of 
the world and the diversity, putting the diversity of the world on the stage and the diversity of the city and the audience. The just cause is always there. Um, I always say that art, art, art is political because art is about people, right? And so um, I come from a practice and that, that might've been one of the reasons why Andres was interested in working with me. I actually come from a practice of what I call, what I was trained, it's called liberation arts. So I come from a practice of just cause uh-huh. arts. Uh-huh. And I don't know just the other world. Just cause arts. So yeah. I, 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 I'm so glad we went here because this thing um, your experience is um, is deeply here, and I'm sure Andres was interested in, in joining you up with BCC in in hopes that it would, you know, do and enliven what what the intention is of the of the mission and all the rest. But when I was in when I was talking with arts and cultural organizations, symphonies and opera and dance and even some theater organizations, theater comes the closest, you know, there's, there's a, there's a, there's an emotive, I can grab you as an audience member and I can make you feel and I can make you consider, or at least hope you will. But it was really remarkable to me how hard it was. And I stepped, I had workshops where I stepped leaders through this question. Mm -hmm. Let's develop Mm -hmm. a just cause. It was remarkable to me how, hard it was to move from the, the, the what we do and how we do it. That's, that's where I find, if you look at the websites in arts and culture, mm. there's a lot of here's what we do and we do it really excellently. That's what we do. And the why and the just cause, um, our communities will thrive if we're able to describe and enliven communities with these kinds of wise and just causes. They just will. And I, arts and culture has an ability to do that in ways that so many other things can't. So I just appreciate so much what you said. And um, boy, I want others to hear. I want others to be challenged by and imagine. Um, okay, so we can come back here. But I, I want to... Um, We've already spoken about it a little bit, but you both know, and um, I'll remind my listeners that our work when we engage with arts and cultural organizations, we we put in the context of a wheel, and there are four components to this wheel that we feel like help make organizations sustainable. They are customer relationships, who is the customer, financial sustainability, how do we do that? What are the organizational frameworks that help ensure the progress and accountability and results happen? And then what is the, we know that data doesn't do, people do. Uh, It doesn't matter how pretty the report or how strong the data, people do everything. So having people-centric teams um, feels really important to us and we focus there. So in fact, Akiba, you said um, the customer are are the kids, right? Is there anything else you would expand on related to that? Huh. Singers, you know, and, and one thing I had to learn when I've in the within the first week, 
at BCC is that we don't call them kids. <laughs> we say singers. Thank and so yeah. they would, singers, and I yeah. would say our singers. And, 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 and it's interesting because when I think about, even though we are a children's chorus, that our, our singers are considered kids, but the choice of, of words, singers over children or students, is stepping into that place of the humanity of people, yeah, right? That, of yeah. the of yes, and, yes. and it's it's stepping into that place to say, what are our customers, our market? What are they entering the space with? And I understanding what TRG when I worked at Art Summerson, I I used TRG, and so I'm very familiar with your platform. And when I think, so I'm going, to, I'm going to talk about this in the frame of markets. So if we say that our singers are our markets, and if we, so that's um, BCC, but let's look at a theater or a symphony or a, um, a, a ballet, um, a dance company. The question that we want to ask is what does our market enter our space with? What what are they entering with? Whether it's our singers, our, we may say our audience. Well, what did what are they entering our space with? And so we want to define our customers by that, not just their transactional aspect that we call out to them. We're calling out to them because they're children. We're calling out to them because um, they're kids, and that's the in the title of our our, our company. But they're singers. They have a voice. They have interests. They and it's all it's all the things right that comes with marketing. All the profiling of a customer, and identifying that essential value, and centering that and speaking to that. And so for for us, we talk about the humanity, identifying the humanity in our market, and speaking up to that, not just at that, but speaking and engaging in dialogue and having the market join us in the discourse, not from a top-down or even bottom-up transactional dialogue, but actual discourse. So for example, at Arts Emerson, I started a, a program called the Play Reading Book Club, and it's, it's a very dynamic program and I, I'm only bringing it up here as an example around how we develop work that puts our market in dialogue and discourse with us. And today at Arts Emerson, they say that the Play Reading Book Club is the best way to create theater superfans. They call it a, a vehicle for creating a theater superfan. As I come to Boston Children's Chorus, I look at that and I say, oh, okay. So the value of that was that this program created theater superfans. So how, what do we transfer from the creation of this space that made, what was it about this program and this interaction that made people come back, you know, program after um, performance after performance, high, the value of the Play Reading Book Club was that people would come in high frequency to the theater. They, yeah. they didn't just come once for the season. They were actually showing up more than subscribers. And so um, how do you transfer these, these skills or these this lens into the work as you identify your customer or your market? 
Um, and so how do you apply that to our singers? Again, trying to find that quintessential, those quintessential value points that makes the singers feel that their humanity is mm-hmm. being considered. And again, going back to our president, I have to go back to our president saying, you know, the younger ones are looking up to us. And I thought and we have to be something mm-hmm. to yeah. look up to. Right. Yeah. Right. Singers. I mean, uh, and I, I will say Akiva will get to see things that even I haven't seen in her first, you know, year at work here. My first year at Boston Children's Chorus was masks and socially distant and digital. But this fall, for example, we'll be going on the first um, overnight retreat that our singers have had. And when we talk about what they feel, that is something we got feedback this summer where we went abroad internationally to, to, to Canada for a music festival. And they came back and said, I feel so connected to my peers. That was a practice that BCC had that we lost back in 2018 that we're bringing back. Um, that Akiba is going to be able to experience with them, evaluate and say, how do we take this even further? Because again, the product is that richness of connection that the, that the young people that we serve get to experience here. They just don't get to experience other places. So I'm really excited for her first few months to have so many experiences for her to just, you know, sink her teeth into and really get to see the work in action um, so that we can develop it and take it to a place that, Honestly, I don't know where it's going to take us. And I'm terrified and excited. And um, we have the team here to support the exploration, right? I often talk about Good Trouble as our R&D lab when it comes to being at the forefront. But, I mean, Jill, you were talking about the just cause. And and let's call them, whether it be traditional art forms um, that have been centered for a long time, right? Not because I have traditional art forms from my country that are not traditional here, um, but in this country, in the context of arts and culture here, I do think there's questions that arts and culture organizations have to ask themselves about what what is relevance going to be, not today and tomorrow when we have donor A, B, and C still paying for this wonderful, you know, extraordinary, exquisite production, but what is that going to be when, you know, today one in four people under the age of 18 have Latino or Hispanic background? What is that going to be in 20 years? Who is going to be the person you're going to be talking to? Are we doing the work today to make sure that by the time that person is the customer that we have to put at the center, that we're actually set up for it, that our practices have evolved? I mean, it goes everywhere once you open that can of worms and you have to start making time for it now because I think our industry is at risk of missing the ball with a huge, huge transformation, both in the consumer base and in the, the business model, um, BCC experience is the same that many of us experience with um, philanthropic dollars really going to basic need during the pandemic and um, the transfer of wealth that is happening uh, additional to the demographic shift. I think arts and culture organizations are, are actually not doing their job if they're not having this conversation today. I agree. And, and, I, and I encourage every single leader of an arts organization, if you're not sitting down with your leadership team, if you're not sitting down with your customer base and hearing from them, if you're not hearing, sitting down and hearing from the people who are not yet your customers, um, you are not doing your job and we're putting um, the precious jewels that we are entrusted with carrying forward and the precious jewels that we have yet to bring forward in artistic expressions in many other places, we're putting that at risk. Totally. That was so beautifully said. So 
humanity. Like that's a word. That's a word that I've heard. I feel seated in that word as a result of this conversation. The financial, so the second quadrant, you know, financial sustainability Mm -hmm. of humanity. I was at a conference um, a a few days ago and I was around a bunch of people um, in tech. But man, oh man, oh man, you start talking about creativity and arts and music and people just, they just open up, you know? And so connecting humanity and arts, and I, I know that there's a way to do this and everybody's, every organization might do it slightly different. Financial sustainability of BCC and humanity. How, how is that changing, Andres, because of these things that you're describing, these trends and realities you're describing? What do you see as required? Yeah. I mean, I see both our work um, having to show up in different places and I see telling the story in different ways. I think our financial sustainability, if you looked at the at the kind of 20 years of history that I've been able to study, really looked at a model that was mostly contributed, that's 70% contributed, 30% earned. There's a tuition model in there that our singers pay tuition and that's a 10 step sliding scale. So presumably we are removing as many barriers as possible. I still have my own qualms with it. For example, the tuition scale doesn't account for it a parent and child household at this level versus another household with two parents, one who's working, maybe an older generation and younger generation at the same household income, but I digress. So there are these building blocks of what, how our revenue um, kind of took place. And I think when I talk about um, the work that we're doing in schools, for example, that's new, that started two years ago. Um, And we did it for free the first year. It was an investment. We sunk in the dollars of time and energy to build this network of opportunities. And now we're at the place where that line of business alone has crossed the $100,000 threshold. It's still a nascent business, but it's one where we know there's demand and it's one that is actually aligned intrinsically <laughs> with the work that we're doing. Going to a, to, a, to a Title I school actually is exposing and bringing in and elevating the stories of so many children that may not be in the chorus currently. So it allows us, allows us to listen, it allows us to learn and test. So. To me, the work that we are doing in developing programmatic offerings, the work that we're doing in bringing the community together actually touches the financial resilience of the organization because we are changing the revenue model. We are changing where the sources of income are going to come from in the future to sustain this work. And I also think it's going to shake out the things that are no longer important or relevant. And I don't know what those things are. Is it going to be difficult when we get to a point and we have to reckon with the reality that this thing we've done for 21 years is no longer yielding the value we thought it did, that's going to be painful. But hopefully we will have an answer and a solution being in community with all these folks that actually shakes out our PNL, shakes out all of our budgeting processes and says, this is the new thing. Right, right, right. And we have to go into that because that's what we are all seeing and understanding from the facts that we're exploring. Um, so, uh, I think our, our, our sustainability just overall, I do desire a healthier split in the contributed earned, um, uh, share of the burden. Um, I am, uh, prepared for, um, individual giving who's been a, has been a significant driver for BCC to decrease. Um, I think people have understood us as an arts and culture institution. Um, and at the same time, as we show up in the education space, opportunities keep just showing up. Sure. The, our, our Maria Antifanaria, who's our fantastic um, institutional uh, giving wizard, 
um, just keep saying, now that Akiva is here, we really got to prioritize. But we have 25 million opportunities that we could be in conversation with folks to fund the work in a really different way that we've never been funded in before. So it's, it's, you, we got to, we talked about nimble earlier, but that's what we're doing is, is there's a lot of ear to the ground, small tests, what's coming back. It's a community reacting to this. And that's going to be how we're going to find the new path forward. Cause the one that is will carry us over for a number of years, but it won't carry us over for forever. You know, I want to, I want to jump in here, Jill, and elevate, go back to your, your question around where do you start when you look at good trouble and also hold in this Andres's description what he is what he's describing is a good trouble model for organizational um for leadership in the 21st century where the the actual bottom line is not just the numbers as far as, okay, we're 70% um, contributed, 30% individual. It's not the, um, when we when we think about, I think in the corp, in corporation, we say, you know, well, what's the bottom line or what's the return on the investment? How do you build a 21st century arts organization where the ROI is the advancement of people? Yeah, right. How right. do you measure that? And what, what Andres is pointing out, he's just named across about four systems in the organization, starting with the, the, the finances. How you have to reshape the organization if that's what you want your bottom line is. If we want business as usual arts organization to move forward, in, then there is no need for good trouble. There's no need to deconstruct. There is no need for a remodel. What we deal with is maintenance. The 21st century arts organization has to look at needs a remodeling, remodeling. And inside of that remodeling is not just um, the need only for more money and more influence and more people, but how, what, are, what are we resourcing with more money? When we have more money, what does the more money resource? When we have more influential players on our staff and on our team, and we're producing um, the, the, these, you know, high visibility players on our stages, what is that resourcing in our community? What is the return? The and so there was um, my good friends at Wolf Brown. They talk about intrinsic value, right? Yeah, sure what is. is the re? What is the return? How do we measure that? So we may want to measure the intrinsic value, but truly. It's not just, uh, is your market showing up, but how are they showing up? And what is your market demanding as they show up? So it's not just that we have our singers, but how are they showing up? And what are they demanding of the arts organization? And what are they demanding of themselves? Again, for this young man, 16, 17-year-olds, to say to his peers, okay, scripted from his intelligence, the adults did not tell him, here's your script, say this to your peers. I demand that we carry ourselves with respect because younger children, younger singers in this company is looking up to us and we must model the self-respect that we want them to have for themselves as well. That, that there, I, I sat down and my mind was blown and I said, how do we resource that? How do we create, give this young person, this singer, 
a return on on his it took courage for him to address his peers like that mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. how does that show up in our budget how does that show up in our staffing what are the resources that would allow this young person's clarion call to his peers to be supported and how do we advance that so i really like the way that andres points that out but i just want to elevate that this is 21st century arts this is where we're going and it's not going back yeah because the old model is not working yeah 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 i think about this i, I just i just love this conversation so much and i think about the t- most traditional i i'm i came out of the classical music field talk about you know it's a tradition bound um framework and very there are exceptions of course and gorgeous 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 ones um but i think about what if the, the what if the, the what if those organizations turned the, themselves on musician on the musicians the adult musicians and said a huge part of our objective is to enable your impact in a different way enable you and grow you rather than this is not the right word but it's the one that comes to mind use your talent to an end you know called I, I i i i don't know what the what the what the answers are for individual businesses as i've described but yours is clear and so when if we go to frameworks one going back to one of the questions i asked i listened to you talk Akib, and i think oh gosh oh you know one of the frameworks being that i'm a singer and my relationship does not end when I leave. There's some ongoing relationship that helps BCC understand the impact of what it's doing in the world. Um, that that um, that excites me just listening to you. But you have you you referenced it, Andres, this competency framework. I I, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the right framework, but organizational frameworks is one of the things that we know and see have an impact on people achieving results. And Mm -hmm. so is that the right framework to think about right now? Or is there another one that you would offer? I mean, I think that's the framework that we are continuing to work off of that our evolution starts from, right? So getting Akiba in her seat, our music director, Kenneth Griffith, got to his seat maybe three, four months before Akiba. Yeah. So their collaboration and their partnership to really fully explore what currently is our competency framework and creating what will be our blank framework. I don't know that it will be competency. It might be something else um, is what I'm excited and terrified at the same time of because it means, uh, again, losing some things, adding some others. And it just means change. I do think there's a lot of other things that we are um slowly but surely tinkering with. Um, if we talk about financial sustainability, putting in the, the measurements for, for that. And what, what is the conversation that a finance committee of the board is having with uh, a finance staff person? And how do we frame that for um, uh, the staff at large? I mean, we we, we have been working, uh, my, my colleague Irene, who is our managing director and myself, have been working on um, a salary and compensation uh, framework that we've been using for the last two and a half years to address some inequities that I discovered when I got here that along the lines of gender really were challenging for me to accept and be responsible for. So there are a lot of other smaller, probably less visible things that are happening on the on the back 
uh, backend that are address, uh, addressing equity um, in in a, in a way beyond just the framework that serves the singers. Um, and I think seeing the connectivity between each of those pieces of work um, as integral to the success of the organization and to the fulfillment of our mission is the part that I think sets this organization apart. I think trying to convince someone that a pay equity study is totally linked to the number of children who are in the organization might be a little tall of an order for traditional PWIs. But at Boston Children's course, our board and our staff are pretty aligned when you start talking about equity and pretty educated in, in the level of investment and commitment you need to have to actually yield that result. So I'm just so fortunate to be able to lead this organization and to keep asking the sometimes annoying but silly questions that you have to ask them. Why do we why do we do it that way? And why are we still and we want to keep doing that that way? Okay, just checking. Let's just come back to this every month or every three like whatever it needs to be. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a this organization has I think the um, the magic uh, potion for a lot of really potent change um, that I'm excited for Akiba and Kenneth to be the 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 kind of megaphone by which all of this gets shared with the community at large. And while we might not have all the answers for ourselves today, I know that the work that uh, we are doing with Akiba and Kenneth and the rest of the team is going to start getting clearer and clearer and clearer the longer time goes on. Because I've already seen it happen in the two months that Akiba has been here. (laughs) So it's like, thank you for being here for clarifying that for me. I've been asking this question for so long. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not at all surprised to hear that. There's a, as, you, as I listen to you talk, I think about another organization that um, I've had on this podcast that also drives positive change. They're a theater company in Phoenix, Arizona, and a framework that they use for planning is one that is agile framework. And mm-hmm. they've been doing it for a decade, and I've been honored to be part of that. But the framework of um, quarterly review about are we actually achieving what we said we wanted to achieve? Is that working? Why do we do that way? Um, there, there's something about frameworks for action mm-hmm. that is really catching my attention right now at a time when the field requires, it indeed, must change. And 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 to keep his point, you don't you don't have to. You can be in maintenance mode. But the truth is that the next 15, 20 years will have an impact on your organization's ability to uh, thrive or I think in some cases survive um, because so much is changing. And, Mm -hmm. and so, okay. And then the the last piece of this wheel for me is people centric teams. People have been all over our conversation. Um, Humanity um, is at the center of our conversation. Um, I, I don't know. Um, if there's anything more that you would say about your specific organizational or leadership approach to the people um, that we haven't set, but I just want to give, give us a chance to talk about that. I, I would love to hear Akiva talk about this because we've been in the early stages of this new group of people that I call the leadership team. And I want to have a different name for it, but we haven't gone to the brainstorming yet. But there are six of us who are um, uh, really tasked with um, transforming the work inside and out and um, getting to the place where we have resources for six people at that level 
was kind of the, the core of my work for the first two years. So our director of development, uh, Maria, who is our institutional advancement um, expert, Irene, our managing director, Kenneth, our music director, Akiba, and myself formed this um, brain trust of, of collaborative thought. And if you ran the personality test and all the background and where we come from, we, we are, you know, all over the place, 50-50 split on gender, LGBTQ members, races all over the place, national origin, like the whole, all of the perspectives, um, uh, a lot of perspectives are present. I will say every perspective is present, but what it is creating in, in this kind of group of people is the opportunity for us to just put people at the center every time. And one of the things that I'm hoping is going to happen by the end of a year of us really working together closely is developing a way that's the BCC way of managing, the BCC way of planning, the BCC way of programming. The, all those things have existed for the organization for a long time and have been successful. But as we enter this new time with this very new structure, we ought to actually revisit what those things are and create a path forward that we in the room are agreeing to. Um, I think it's going to be interesting for me as a person who is who holds the power in the room um, to see that power for other people to step up um, and create that kind of turbocharged, people-driven um, way of thinking that I see being a, a differentiator for us and being able to attract the talent we need to do the work that we need to do. And that's just on the staff people side. Um, that doesn't touch the donor conversations we're having. That doesn't touch the conversation we need to have with parents and with singers, but it, it's hopefully an incubator space that then has to, rep, you know, focusing on staff in my eyes has the ability to replicate across the board. Cause if the six of us are creating a new mechanism by which we manage our work and elevate our teams, that's going to actually propel forward to all the rest of the teams um, at the organization. So it's, again, terrifying and exciting at the same time because you never know what the outcome is going to be, but you're just happy to be in the work and happy to be developing it alongside colleagues who are brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. You know, during the, um, going back to this people-centric, that's a popular term, during the pandemic, as we started to emerge from under the mask, something happened. They called it the great resignation. And I think in a lot of ways, organizations or leaders in organizations use that as a way, as a scapegoat. The term actually didn't, didn't I, I, I thought the, the term the great resignation was actually a scapegoat that let um, leadership off the hook. And what, what it really was, was people were saying, my survive, we've just survived a, a pandemic. And my survival as a human being is that I be seen, heard, and valued. But I also have space to, to express myself. So no, I will not be oppressed in the workplace. And I have to, I, I, I'm always, even though I consider myself a high millennial, I have to give my millennial generation the, the praise and my Gen Zers, the, the younger generation saying, this is how I'm going to show up in the workplace. And I won't be oppressed. Because if I could survive this thing, if I could wear a mask 24 hours a day, then I need to be 
seen, heard, and respected in a particular way. And so we talked about the, the great resignation, but it changed. It completely changed the workforce because we saw one thing that emerged and the, and the, and, and the one thing that I didn't hear, the entrepreneurial spirit emerged en masse. They called it the great resignation. But people left. The side hustles took the lead. Yeah, 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 yeah. The side hustle, right? Yeah. We saw the Instagram, um, the, the the Instagram chores, the the entrepreneurs that were making their money and making their fortunes through social media or through the gig economy, the the Uber drivers, the delivery people. People went back to being butcher bakers and candlestick yeah. makers yeah. for yeah. themselves. Yeah. And so when I think about, so I'm going to go back and, and age myself as a high millennial, but I'm a Gen Xer. And when I was coming out of high school and entering college, the one thing they used to beat into our heads or promote, let me not use that term beat in our heads, but promote is this notion of what is the entrepreneurial spirit? How do we build the entrepreneurial spirit in young people in, in our, in our workforce so that as they enter the workforce, people are, feeling um, fully responsible for the work they're doing. And they're not just entering as route and remote work as just, you know, routine workers. And so part of when we talk about good trouble and centering the humanity is that we center what is the, what is the problem as, as a, as a staff member sees it and how they see it to solve it. What is that entrepreneurial spirit? And I know that there's some co- there was some controversy around the entrepreneurial spirit, but we do have to look at the fact that when people left the workforce during the quote unquote great resignation, they went and found, they picked up sticks, they, they, they found ways to do for themselves and be the leaders of their own destiny. And how can people create destiny for themselves inside of a work? the work this 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 thing is um another thing that has captured um my imagination a whole lot there's another book that seth godin his latest one that he's just published called the song of significance do have you Mm -hmm. you familiar with it it is um you know it's a it's a it's a book of seth's in the ways that he writes these small as he calls mini rants that are compiled Mm -hmm. into a book but um, that changes that we're driving at TRG are are um, we're doing some experimentation that I've talked to, to you, Andres, about, but not you, Akiba, and it's designed to put people into self-managing groups, decentralized self-managing mm-hmm. groups, so that the people who are closest to the work have an ability to be heard, to lead, and to define what's the most important thing to be doing in the context of very clearly articulated goals for a year, but how that, how those goals are achieved, that's yours to um, imagine and enliven and, 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 and make, and make happen with the idea of this reigniting entrepreneurialism, reigniting a sense of passion and excitement about the work um, and really, hopefully, creating a group of people who, whose impact they feel really connected to, having driven um, on behalf of our field and and our and our clients. So everything that you're describing, I think you're right. 
I think you're right. I've nobody said it that way. The great resignation enabled leaders to go, oh, well, and took them off the hook. And instead, the question is, how am I creating a culture in an environment where people feel like, oh, man, this is where I can do my best life work. Um, yes. That, yes. Will, that will translate to the things that you're trying to achieve. It will. Uh, it will. Well, listen, you two. Um, what a what a real delight to, uh, to talk to you both about what you're trying to do there and what you're currently already transforming. Transformation of these these um, organizations, these amoebas mm-hmm. <laughs> that are made up of people and spirits and humans and um, and humanity, uh, so that. You know, we occupy this rarefied, rarefied air, right? Like arts and culture has an ability to connect with and make communities better, yeah. right? I mean, that's rarefied air and space. And I leading the way is about the people and ways in which um, change is happening. And you two represent it, uh, along with Kenneth and everybody else that you are um, you know, working with to drive change for for singers in Boston and for the community of Boston and the world, clearly, because when you're out there, you're touching people. I'm grateful that you spent time on this Leading the Way episode with me. Akiba, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Andres, thank you for being my friend and for, for joining um, me on this on this podcast and helping our listeners see what you're up to. Thank you for having us. It's an absolute pleasure. Yes. Thank you so much, Jill. This is incredible inquiry and very necessary for our field. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Leading the Way with Jill S. Robinson, brought to you by TRG Arts. Thanks for listening and believing that insightful, daring, and innovative leadership is the way to a more resilient future for the arts and cultural industry. Make sure to subscribe to Leading the Way on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And if you found this episode helpful, please rate and review the show. For additional resources and to sign up for the podcast newsletter, we invite you to visit our website at leadingthewaypodcast.com.